Hi, everybody. Don't miss this episode today. We have Sherry Pusey with us, who is the director over at Moms Don't Have Time to Grieve, which is part of Zibby Owens's Moms Don't Have Time to conglomerate. And Sherry is going to be talking to us about her own personal loss, as well as her experience collating information and talking to other grievers, connecting them with resources. This episode hits all the high notes. You're not going to want to miss it. Thanks for being here. This is Megan Reardon Jarvis, and we're back for another episode of Grief is My Side Hustle, the podcast. I am delighted this morning to be here with Sherry Pusey, who is becoming a new friend over the internet. Sherry is going to give us a description of who she is in the world, what her work is, and why grief is relevant to her. Hi, Sherry. Hi. Thank you for having me, Megan. This is so fun. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do in the world. Well, I am a wife and a mom of two. I have two daughters who are four and six in just a couple of days. Oh, and I've been a stay-at-home mom for years. And just recently I started working for Zibby Owens Media Company, running a new community called Moms Don't Have Time to Grieve. And we're curating resources and recommending things for people who are grieving or caring for an ill loved one, just with the hopes that they will not feel so alone in a really hard season. I think, you know, especially after the last year, 15 months, so many people are grieving more, more than we could have imagined. And I think it's just really hitting a need that we have right now. It's hard to know when you're in the midst of, especially early grief, what you need, what will be helpful. So we're hoping that our community will just be a landing place for people to maybe find what they didn't know they were looking for, or didn't have the energy on their own to seek it out. But when we recommend it and they can just grab, whether it's a book or an article or a podcast episode, something that will just help them in their grief and help them to not feel alone. It's an amazing new platform. And you and I are both connected to Zibby, which we can talk about a little bit. I started just in Zibby's book club. And now the writing that I'm doing, I'm one of Zibby's new class of writers in her fellowship program, but Zibby is like a force of nature. And she, for our listeners who might not know, she's an avid reader, loves books and treats authors like rock stars. And that's what she does all day long is she interviews authors, but she's also a human and a mom and, and a griever herself that she came into the world of her podcasting, having had really significant loss one of which was her best friend during 9-11, but I think also multiple other losses around that time. Mm -hmm. And then this year, her husband lost his mother and grandmother to COVID in a really dramatic, well, I guess they're all dramatic, but in in a loss that was really shared with her community and felt by her community. And so shortly thereafter, you guys started this program. So tell us, like, obviously my listeners know a bit about my loss story, but what brings you into the world of grief and loss? For me, the, the main personal loss that I've suffered was the death of my brother. Almost 12 years ago, he and his girlfriend were both murdered and it was just obviously a total shock and yeah, just very life-changing for sure. I had just turned 21, so I was still quite young and really just on that verge of transitioning from childhood and college to full on adult. And so it was really just a pivotal time in my life anyway, but then, you know, that 
that big trauma and grief and tragedy really as all grief does left a big mark on me. And it's like, as you say, a grief that I have carried for these years and it's changed a lot about who I am and my personality, but also how I look at the world and the way I see grief and empathize with others who are hurting. It's really changed a lot of who I am. And that's, yeah, that would be the biggest loss that has defined my kind of grief experience in the way that I interact and view grief. One of the things that I talk to the, my guests about is sort of like that out of order grief, right? Mm-hmm. That the traumatic loss, which is the truly completely unexpected loss, the concept of someone being murdered, like even that word murder is not something that most people have that hold in their own personal hand, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. I don't know, something on television, right? So, and that's 12 years ago, you know, that this podcast, part of what we do is just sort of talk about how, how we carry that grief over time and how that shifts and changes over time. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting now, 12 years out that you're curating resources for this ever growing community. And, and for those of us in the field, I mean, I think about it a lot, you know, all hands on deck because, Mm -hmm. In the trauma world, what we know is there's the traumatic event and about a year later, we're going to expect to see the symptoms of the trauma needing to be processed. Mm -hmm. So we're in the thick of that right now. Like we need to be getting, we need to be gathering the flashlights and the life preservers and all that stuff. And that I said to you before we started recording your community, the things that you have cultivated and are continuing to cultivate the Instagram lives and all of that. I have it so that it pops up in my feed as the, in fact, I just clicked on a new article today and I, there's like a really wide breadth. There's different modalities coming from different, coming from different magazines. And I know people are writing articles for your platform. Would you say that that is part of sort of where your grief is at now, as opposed to where it would have been you know, 12 years ago that, that becoming sort of a resource manager and cultivator and curator is part of how you're carrying it. I would say yes. But if you had told me 12 years ago that I I would be doing this, I would never have believed you for a lot of these years. My grief is not something that I've been able to talk about and I've held it really tightly because it's hard to talk about. I mean, it's personal, but it's also like you were saying earlier, earlier, even that word murder is very shocking. And so to say that to someone, it can be very awkward for them and people don't know how to respond. It's different than losing someone to an illness or old age or something. And so for a lot of years, I really have struggled with how do I even bring up this piece of me? Sometimes it's easier just to leave it to the side and not always engage when I'm talking about it with people. So to see the growth that I've had over these years, is really amazing that I'm now talking about it and interacting with people in the grieving space daily, it's really remarkable. And I think it just speaks to how we can grow and our grief does change. It's always there. The sadness is there, but it's different and I'm different. It's really incredible, honestly, um, to just see how that can change us over the years. And I do think it's just the next season of my grief, this this pulling of resources. And I'm constantly thinking really about grief more than I have in a lot of years because I'm doing it all day and I'm thinking about it and I'm listening to things and I'm reading things and I'm hearing other people's stories. And honestly, sometimes it can feel a little bit overwhelming. Yeah, and I'm for sure. sure as a therapist, not that it's to the same level, but you can feel that, that 
just the weight of the grief that our world is experiencing. And when I think about each individual person who is grieving their person, it's heartbreaking. I feel that heaviness sometimes. I think it's probably also been a little bit healing for me because I've cried more. I'm not a big crier, but sitting in the stories and reading about the implications of grief on our culture. So many children right now who have lost parents, it's, it's heavy. And I think it's been good for me, honestly, to sit in that and allow myself to feel those emotions again. And yeah, just, it's, I think it's been good for me. Yeah. I love that. Part of what I think of as my job as a trauma therapist is to be sort of a hope, a hope merchant, like Mm. allow people to have the belief that it's not always going to feel this way. There's a beautiful writer, Jessica Kantwitz, who, you know, I think she puts that up on her Instagram every day, which is just like, it will not always feel this way. (laughs) And I think that's part of what this podcast hopes to do. And generally what our guests are able to say, which is, I remember concretely the moments of feeling like I'm never going to be okay in my life. Mm -hmm. This is never going to be okay with me. I will never manage it. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, this sort of other side of it, which is like, somehow it is. Yeah. So I went from, it will never, and I know that, and it's true. I can feel it. Don't try to convince me otherwise. And Mm -hmm. somehow it is. Mm -hmm. And so there's this unbelievable force inside humanity, which is we recover from the unrecoverable. And I, mm-hmm. I say this every time I do not mean every person, not every person gets to come to a place where they are able to integrate the grief. There are people for whom the grief takes them down, Yes, but many of us need support and help the way that you need support and help when you're taking a really complicated language class I don't know what this is. It doesn't make any intuitive sense. And then like with languages, at some point you're able to say sentences, even though you couldn't before. I think that's why working with, you know, this moms don't have time to grieve has been so, I'm so passionate about it because I have seen that you can get, I'm hesitant to say the other side, but you can grow and you can get to where you are able to manage it better and carry it. And so for people who are maybe just starting out and feel like you were just saying, like, I can't carry this, this isn't ever going to feel better to be there to encourage and give reminders that you can, Yeah, I have done it. I have walked the unimaginable road and I've healed in more ways than I ever thought that I could let me help you. I think there's a gift in people who are able to look back and say that. I remember people saying that to me in the early days, like, it's not always going to feel this hard. And I didn't believe them. It's like, how, but I'm so thankful because I remember that. I remember that conversation. I remember those moments and I'm thankful that they were there in my life to say that. And I would like to do that for other people. One of the very first people that I called sort of accidentally, like, you know, there's that thing in, in the, in those moments. And I talk a lot about this in various places. And I have a scientist who's come a neuroscientist who's coming on on Friday to really talk Mm. about what happens to your brain when, Mm. you know, you get the terrible news and how long the impacts of that are, because I think that's neuroscience that everyone should know, right? Like the same way we should understand what goes on with our bodies in puberty, like with some trauma, it's really helpful to know that, you know, the oxygen's not making it to the, your frontal lobe. You're not doing good critical thinking that you're going to have all these weird misfires. Anyway, one of the very first phone calls that I made, which I sort of feel like was grace 
within an hour after my mom died, I had just gotten out of the car was to a friend of mine who had lost his wife to cancer about a decade prior. Mm -hmm. And she was very young. They had a like a less than two-year-old baby at the time. And his mother had died maybe a year ago at that point. And I mean, I was calling him about laundry because we were sharing houses and I was like, the towels are not where they're supposed to be. And he was like, Megan, your mom just died. And Mm. I was like, my mom just died. And he said some things to me in that moment that I hearken back to all the time. Mm. One of them was permission to feel sort of detached and furious with my family's need for me to be a mom. Mm. He sort of said like, you need to square your kids away because you need to be the daughter in this moment. It took me a beat or two to figure that out, but I had that in my ear. Part of the hope of of the podcast is to be able to be in the ear of people as they're in their arc over time and to sort of say, Mm -hmm. you know, we believe that humans generally Mm -hmm. are able to integrate the element of loss into their lives, even when it's untenable. I mean, I had Carrie Schmidt on my podcast the other day and she's someone who brought her seven-year-old son into the hospital. I know everyone, I got so many comments. And what I said to her is we're going to get so many comments on this podcast because people want to look away from your story. Yeah. It's too too scary. It's yeah. Very fear of every parent. Yeah. 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 So tell me a little bit, you were, you were just getting out of college and again, it's 12 years ago. How did you survive those early days? Were there people who came in and were helpful to you? Did you start walking, you know, across the city? Did you listen to music? Do you remember how you managed? I remember bits and pieces, which I think is part of the trauma and the shock But I was in the unique position of having just finished college, but I wasn't sure if all my credits would transfer from study abroad. So I kind of had already planned on living at home for a semester Mm. with my parents before I figured out whether I needed to do another study abroad or just look for a job. So that was really a huge blessing because I can't even imagine having already had a job lined up, like my first career and going to that, like there's no way I could have done that. So that was just such a gift that that was already my plan. I was going to be living back at home. The people were my parents and my sister who also lived in town. And that was so helpful. I can't imagine being far away from them at that time. Each of us grieving in our own way because the relationship is different. Even my sister's relationship with our brother is different than my relationship with him, but it was still a shared grief. And to be able to be with them was just key. I really can't imagine any other way. I also had good friends again, because I was in my hometown friends that I had known for forever and also knew my brother. That was what was so key to me. I wasn't out with college friends who only maybe knew him a little bit or new friends in my career. It was people that we'd grown up together. And so the shared history was there And I didn't have to explain him or explain my family or my relationship. I could just share what I needed to in the moment. And they understood it. Yeah. That was so, so key for me. Those were the people that were really helpful. And I probably didn't do a very good job of grieving the first year. I think I pushed a lot outside and was really in a lot of denial and it just felt too hard. It felt too hard to even think about it. I, it was so overwhelming. The, the very early days, I just remember, I just felt like I couldn't even breathe. Yeah. And 
it, it was just, it was too much for me to handle. And so I think because I felt like that, I pushed it away. And I think I did that really for a long time, but the first year, especially at that time, I was also just dating the guy that I ended up marrying Mm. and we got married just a few days after the one year anniversary of my brother's death. And that was made for an interesting first year of marriage, because I think a lot of the grief kind of caught up to me or just started really coming out in that first year of our marriage. And it was really hard. So I just had a lot of anger and fear. And that really came out in that really second year of grief. Are you an outward anger or inward anger kind of person? Do you, do you go out with it and, you know, tear other people, burn them down, which is more my way, but I grew up as an inward anger person. So I, I did a lot of, I should have, why didn't I? I think I'm outward. Yeah. Yes. My yeah. fuse is very short. Okay. And yeah, it's like, I feel so sh- shameful, like the anger, I think is just the ugliest part of my grief because it is against who I want to be. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of scary. Sometimes it's scary to me, even just the, the rage that I can feel at times. And yeah, I think there's anger in any grief, but I think maybe in the situation with my brother, it, it feels amplified because it yeah. just feels so, it's so unjust and so much confusion and no answer. So it it's just, yeah, a lot, a lot of anger. But the other thing I did start doing was running. You did. Okay. And I'd never been a runner, not interested. No, thank you. Like not very athletic. I'll swim and that's it. But I started running for the first time and I would listen to music and run. And that helped. That really helped. It was like a way for my body to work through some of the grief, even if I wasn't maybe sharing all the things that I probably should have been sharing or processing it mentally, but I knew my body was processing it when I would run. Yeah. And that's something that I've kept up. I have times when I run more, when the grief feels heavier or around anniversaries, it has been the thing that has helped me the most. I would say the running. Did you find that? Did you fall into that? Or did someone suggest it? Did someone say, Hey, by the way, there's some studies that indicate that running can, or did, were you just like, huh, running sneakers, I'm going to put those on and see what happens. No one suggested it. I just, yeah, I just tried. I, I think because I had so much anger, I just had to do something and I would always start out really fast, like get all that extra anger energy out. And then of course I would slow down to more manageable pace, but yeah, I fell into it. And then I realized, oh, this actually feels good. This is helpful. And what what you're talking about is the embodiment of this explosion of energy that you are burdened with in Mm. loss, right? Mm -hmm. So it's this, this attachment that you have is obliterated in a way that we cannot make any sense of. And we Mm -hmm. have all that stuff that goes through our brain. Like even when you said, I can't really remember that. What I know about that is you can't really remember it because that's part of your, your brain's way of trying to help you not have to be overwhelmed in grief. And so, and Mm -hmm. it's kind of standard, you know, if we brought a hundred people in here and said like, what do you remember? Every one of them is going to be like, I I don't know if this happened before this or that Yeah, because, and, and the brain scientist that I'm talking to, the neuroscientist, she, she likens it to a concussion having like a terrible, terrible concussion. And there's something about the science of that where I'm like, yeah, 
That's what it is. I mean, I've always described it as like a gong that goes off in your head and it sort of reverberates all these things like your thalamus and your hippocampus and your hypothalamus. And, and the idea that actually there's some neuroscience that says it's like getting a concussion. I just love that. Good. Yes. Let's tell people like you have, a let's treat it like a concussion. People around you should treat you like you have a concussion and just like concussions, they can take, I mean, I have somebody right now that's on rest from a concussion and it's month Mm -hmm. three. So she's on Mm -hmm. three months of rest because she was in a car accident and hit her head really hard. Three months wouldn't have been enough. My brain was still not anywhere near making any kind of sense. There's two other pieces in here. One is that your body just move towards the wisdom of running without mm-hmm. really you knowing or understanding that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like how people will be like, there's no way I'm going to put that sushi in my mouth. I already know I'm not going to like it versus <laughs> that looks good to me. I want to have a bite. Right. I can't explain to you why that is. I just kind of know that I might like that. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm talking to people about grieving, if you're hearing Sherry's story and the idea of running sort of feels appealing, get some running shoes and run because your yeah. body has a wisdom. And if that doesn't work and somebody's talking about music or writing, or there's a million different ways, but it's mm-hmm. about that mother load of energy. Yeah. Needing to find ways to process that through so that it's not just, you know, a giant burden in one kind of way. Mm -hmm. And what you talked about, which I think is really key. And I hear all the time is that anger people who did not know themselves to be angry Mm -hmm. suddenly are overcome with anger and it affects everything but primarily it affects the relationships with the people who are around and who are, you know, quote unquote, trying to be helpful. Mm-hmm. I look back at the, you know, the first few mo- months after my mom died and just the rage that I yeah. had, and I can look at it and be like, wow, that was such ungenerous. I also have to show up with compassion because I wasn't being generous because I didn't have anything to offer. I needed all of myself for myself. Mm-hmm. in order to do that energy shifting in order. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating right. All of that stuff. But mm-hmm. I do think, God, wouldn't it be interesting if we said to people, when you have sudden loss, it's like a concussion and expect a mother load of anger. Yeah. It won't <laughs> always so stay that way, but yes. expect it, right? Expect yeah. it. Yes. Expect a mother load of anger because I don't know a single person who didn't hit anger at some point, not in a five stages way. Cause that shit makes me crazy. The kind of therapy, the trauma therapy world that I come from believes that those things like big anger come in to protect you from hmm. something more vulnerable behind you. So hmm. I call mine Megan double guns. She comes in to like shoot and burn <laughs> shit down. She's like an arsonist and, and her intention is to protect the more vulnerable element hmm. behind her. So Mm -hmm. if I cause enough distraction, if I wreak enough havoc, then I'm going to be fighting with my husband about some old thing from six years ago. And we will never get to the fact that I am really sad today Mm -hmm. about the fact that I'm not going to X, Y, and Z with my loved one. Yeah, I have, I'm that same way. And I also see it coming out in like, if I can't get in touch with my husband, yeah. And I can't reach him. That's very triggering to me. And so then I get angry. Like, why didn't you answer the phone? Cause it's easier for me to get angry at him for something that he didn't even really do. That was wrong. Then admit 
I am afraid of losing someone else and not being able to get in touch with them or with my kids. Like they do something that I sense is dangerous. It's anger first, not concern or fear because the fear is almost too scary. It's easier for me to go to anger. Then yeah, that's what's really going on. Yeah. Cause it's almost like the anger comes in to take care of the fear. The yeah. anger comes in is like, what the hell, where the hell have you been? Instead yeah. of, I need you to know that I was picking out my dress for your funeral. Yeah. You know, there is this element. I also think for those of us, you know, particularly with early loss, like I have loss all the way back to when I was eight and a mm-hmm. beloved teenager in my life died. And the legacy of that loss also makes you feel a little crazy. Like you kind of know when you're 21 years old and you're mourning your brother and everyone else is going out drinking mm-hmm. that you're the one that's different yeah. than everyone else. This is true with all grievers. Like you don't want to be the person who shows up at the baby shower and is the bummer. And so some of us just avoid going, mm-hmm. but most of us, what we do is minimize it. Yeah. And the problem with minimizing it is, or not naming it is it can do all this weird kind of funky shame stuff. Shame is who I am, not how I feel or what I do. Shame is really me, Mm -hmm. but I can create shame. Like, oh, this is me. I'm the problem instead of this thing happened. And it's difficult for anyone in a baby shower environment to navigate. And, and so what I can do with that is sort of double down on the sense of isolation and aloneness by not Mm -hmm. talking about it. It is so standard for people who have had loss to go through, you know, you're 10 minutes late. Well, I have already picked out your entire funeral arrangements. Like I know songs at your funeral and I know, or to just sort of sit there and perseverate over that, to look over your baby's crib and be like, I love you. And this is what my life would look like if I lost you. And for people who don't have loss, that's not as typical and right. It's just not as typical (laughs) to like be dressed rehearsing the calamity of how I will survive the loss of you just because Mm -hmm. you're 10 minutes late or, you know, that is a hallmark of those of us who've had the traumatic loss. And so, you know, or in the early days with my husband, I would get mad at him or we'd be in a fight and he's very, oh my God, he's so even keel. Like, you know, he can yeah. run the UN. He would be like, you seem to be very annoyed at me in a way that is confusing to me. Is there <laughs> anything else that I need to know? But I'd be like, okay, all right, fine. I'm going to tell you, this is the story I have in my head of what's going to happen. And one, one famous story is when our youngest was born, my mom and dad always had these like black and white photographs taken when we would go up and see them on Cape Cod and, or somebody in my family of a big family would organize this. So we have these beautiful portraits of my oldest and my middle guy. And then the youngest one is born. It was like, do we need them? They're really expensive. Who even cares? And as soon as we canceled it or my mom canceled, something happened. I started to not sleep. Hmm. And I was like, what is wrong with me? And my mind did what it does, which is like, well, if you don't take pictures of him, he's probably going to die. Yeah. And then you'll always regret. I mean, I can yeah. see your face. the listeners can't see your face. Like, I know how crazy that is. Yeah. I actually 100% know how crazy that thought is. And it is a real fear. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. my system. That is a real fear. So I probably fought with my husband for like a week and a half about anything. Like, why'd you, you know, why'd you cut this onion this way? And he was Uh like, Hey, so just checking in, 
you are angry at me about everything. Is there anything I should know? Which is sort of how he approaches it. And I was like, I think we need to have pictures taken of Nicholas because if we don't, he might die. And my husband, instead of being like, that is fucking crazy. He was like, how much are the pictures? Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. They're like $500, which to me seemed like a lot of money, whatever it was, $200, whatever it was, it was a lot. And he was like, then why don't we get them? If it will make this terrible thought go away. Mm -hmm. And of course the terrible thought went away just by sharing the fact that I was having it. I did. We didn't, we never took the pictures, you know, quick, quick side note. There are no black and whites. (laughs) Don't go looking for them. (laughs) But I, and I really carry that since Mm -hmm. then. First of all, he didn't shame me. I already knew that it was a crazy thought. I am suffering with crazy thoughts because that is the legacy of loss. Yeah. Is that we are trying to control with our minds, things that can't be controlled. It is part of grief. And he was in it. He was like, okay, fine. How do I get in this with you? Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the anger and part of that frustration and part of that stuff is like, I don't want to be in this by myself. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to bring you in this. Yes. Maybe because it's so crazy. I don't want to say it out loud. All my thoughts Mm -hmm. and feelings. I just know I feel this way. Yeah. I don't really know what it's all about. Yeah. I think having people in your life who have also experienced some sort of loss is so helpful because they can kind of say, you're not crazy. That's normal. Because back to what you were saying earlier about just education, about trauma, education, just about grief. I think as a culture, we have these expectations. This is what grief looks like. Get rid of this because you don't know exactly what your grief is going to look like, but here are some things that may happen. And this is very normal. And to hear whether I hear from someone individually, their personal story or reading something that, Oh, this is a normal thing in grief. It is so freeing because it's kind of a little bit nerve wracking to have those crazy thoughts and think, is this who I am now? I'm this crazy person with these crazy thoughts, but to know, Oh, that's part of it is so reassuring it takes away the extra fear on top of the other fear that I'm now just a crazy person and will be for the forever. It's helpful to me to know this is normal and you can expect that this may happen, but if it doesn't, you're not weird. So there's a fine balance between what's normal, but don't get wrapped up in, this is what my grief has to look like. And I think we can tend to go one way or the other. I, what I say is, yeah, that's within the constellation of things. You know, Mm -hmm. I remember when I was pregnant, any weird thing that happened with my body, I didn't read the books because they made me too anxious, but I'd say to my husband, like swollen gums, look that up. And he's like, yep, it's pregnancy. I'm like, (laughs) just like everything that is possible to happen weird to your body could be on account of the pregnancy. Now it could be on account of other things, right? But I think that there are lots of people who want us to not have to mm-hmm. suffer with all of the pain mm-hmm. and agony of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, and I think when you're in that space, it can feel like judgment. It can feel yes. like being misunderstood. And what I know, because I've done this for years with grievers is when I feel judged and misunderstood, I will pull away from you. Yeah. I just won't call you. We will not go for a walk next. And you yeah. might not even notice because you're taking your kids to soccer practice and you thought you showed up as a great friend and you brought me a casserole and you said something and it landed wrong. And now I can't be around you. Mm-hmm. What happens in those instances is that we 
sort of isolate ourselves or watch people be isolated if we're trying to support them. And then we, well, I don't want to push them. I don't want to. And I think, again, if we changed the concept of grief and said, it should be a collective process, it's going to be painful for everyone. You're going to say the wrong thing. They're going to say the wrong thing to you. You're going to have to correct them. It's going to be really bumpy, Mm -hmm. but we don't want to end up alone. Yeah. Right. Like don't end up alone. Yeah. That is where things get sticky. How do we go in and support that? And so just exactly what you just said, which is reading other people's words and finding other people's stories and being able to connect to that. But I also think sort of public PSA, public health message of this is the constellation of things that happen. I have a writer's workshop that I do. And when I do the little video about like, this is what's going on with your brain, I I have to do it intentionally when I have some time, because I get, you know, 50 to a hundred messages where Mm -hmm. people are like, okay, so wait, can I just run this past you? Could this be because, and the answer always is yes. It's always yes. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes, 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 yes. Yes. I'm on a lot of grief and loss boards and I don't respond to them in there, but I do see that sort of like, wow, I just wish you had this information because you would feel less crazy. I think, Yeah, you know, you would feel less like, you know, you're the first person to have ever done this. Mm -hmm. That's sort of how some of my anger has shown up as a therapist. I mean, you know, part of the reason that I talk about all of this, part of it is my personality is I couldn't not talk about it. But is also, you know, if you were going to pick one person who shouldn't be traumatized, who should recover quickly, who, you know, should know it would be me. I was in the world of grief and loss. I had significant loss in my childhood. I did two decades worth of like super intense therapy. I've been trained at all the trainings. I work with trauma. I have worked with trauma for a long time. I had lost my dad and that was not traumatizing. And then we get to my mom and I'm like, wow, look at that. Mm-hmm. You are not inoculated just because you know everything. Yeah. And, and one of the other things that I'm thinking about is there's those universals and there's the specifics. Yes. Right. So, so I'm curious for you, you know, when I talk to people who have lost relatives to suicide, one thing that they tell me every time is that they don't like the way other people react to that word. Mm -hmm. It's not a neutral word. And people ask them crazy things because of that word. Did you know, like, what, why would you even ask that goddamn question? But I know as a therapist is that word makes people afraid. Yeah. That is a scary word. So Mm -hmm. if I am afraid of that word, I am going to ask some questions about it right now. Well, you know, is there a history in the family? Why are you asking me this? Mm -hmm. But imagine if instead that person said, wow, that is such a scary word that Mm -hmm. makes me scared for you, even just hearing it. Yep. So I'm curious, right? You have the word murder. That's your Mm -hmm. word. And you have that at 21. My brother was murdered. How Mm -hmm. have you navigated that the same way that that Carrie, she has a seven-year-old. He died, you know, weeks after being diagnosed with cancer. That every mm-hmm. time I tell that story, I get freezing cold. That's how much energy. Mm-hmm. And I've known her a while. That's how much energy that brings me in my body. And I know that when she goes places, people are like, I can't go. I can't. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. 
she, you know, she's a, a complete warrior, but I'm curious for you, like what, what happens? Do people say, Oh, I want to know the story. You know, well, what mm-hmm. happened? Tell me the story. Mm-hmm. How has that particular part of the story been relevant to your, yeah. to your grief story? I think for a lot of years, I wouldn't even say the word murdered because yeah. I couldn't, it was too hard. So I'd say he was killed. And then if someone was, you know, brave enough to say, oh, how it happened, then I had to say it. Then it was like, oh, I could sense they wish they hadn't asked because they were thinking car accident or something a little more palatable for them to hear. And so for a lot of years, I just would avoid the word. Then I have grown more comfortable with saying it. That's just the truth. And yeah, the reaction is always, oh, what happened? Oh, why, who did it? Like they want to know the whole story. And that is hard because if I don't know them well, it's like, okay, let, do you want to tell me the most painful personal thing in your life? Like that that's hard. Initially it was a lot. And then it was in the news. I mean, it was all over the news. It was in national news. It was in local news. So I didn't have to explain very much because everyone knew everyone knew. But it was, and that was helpful. It was helpful to, to, or it was, it was, it was helpful that I didn't have to give the story over and over because they read in the newspaper, they saw on TV, they knew it was hard because even people I didn't know knew. And so I would go to the store and swipe my credit card and they'd see my last name and then they, I would get the face and they would know who I was. And that was really hard because I was never anonymous. Everyone knew, and I couldn't ever just yeah, escape from it. If I wanted to just be by myself or do whatever, there were always people around that knew. And I don't know if this was imagined, but I felt like everyone was looking at me differently or, you know, my family would walk into church and then everyone's like, Oh, there they are. And I didn't like that. I didn't want that to be my only identity. And so it was helpful in the sense I didn't have to explain it, but hard in that that was all people thought of when they saw me. I thought maybe that's not true. I think for some time that probably was true. So in early days it was like that, but I have since moved multiple times. Okay. And so when I'm meeting new people, there's always the standard get to know you questions. How many siblings do you have? And so then it's like, I have to go through it. And we've now moved so many times. It's hard. It's still hard every time because I don't want that to be the main thing that they remember about meeting me or getting to know me that, Oh, she's had this thing, but I can't not say it. If they ask, like, I don't lead with it. It's a part of my story, but it's not all of who I am. What do you say when people say, do you have siblings? Like, how do you answer that question? I say I have two older sisters and I have a brother who was killed and sometimes it's also funny because people will say, Oh, like, what's your birth order? And that is also complicated because it's like, well, I was third, but with such a big gap, I was really like the oldest, but my brother was killed. So now I'm the baby. I'm all of them. I'm really all of them. So that's another tricky question. So I've learned kind of going back to like having a grief narrative. I have my answers. Okay. How many siblings do you have? Here's my answers. What happened? Here's my answer. And I kind of have to just be ready to say it in a way that is not going to trigger me and make me overly emotional while also trying to make the person asking me as comfortable as possible, which I think we as grievers put that pressure on ourselves to comfort others when we're talking about our own grief, because I know that it's awkward for them and they don't know what to say. And I don't want them to feel bad or feel like 
they're going to say something wrong. I try to make it as easy as possible for them, but I know it's an impossible topic to talk about. It's just so heavy and unexpected and hard. So I feel for people that are kind of going into a conversation, totally unaware of what's going to come out of it. I feel for them. What I'm thinking about when you're saying that is the time when I didn't feel for people, Mm -hmm. when I was more in my anger and I was sort of like, well, you fucking tread in it. So you hold it now, you know, which is so not generous, but I'm just, again, I'm pointing that out to people because that's not the spot that I'm in now. Mm -hmm. I am much more able to be gentle with people. But in the beginning, what it felt like was, okay, you or me, you either feel bad or I feel bad. And I already feel so bad. I can't feel any worse. So now it's going to be you. Yeah. I don't feel that way now. And I'm able to help people navigate it. But what I, I've just written an op-ed about this. What I really feel is folks should be educating themselves about Mm. this, that we should, when the concept of trans was new in our culture, which of course it wasn't new, but when it was like culturally now something that we were going to take on. And partly we were taking that on because what we had learned is the suicide rate among adolescents is unbelievable. And that has got to be because of what society is doing. And so for the benefit, you know, of wanting people to not be traumatized. And I remember being, okay, I'm going to I'm going to sit down and figure this out. Mm -hmm. And what I came out with the other side was there's no such thing as figuring this out. There's, there's being able to ask good questions and having a conversation about it because ultimately people tell you who they are. Mm -hmm. Don't decide based on cat. But I look at that as a way that I really sat down and educated myself and it wasn't for a specific person, but because that's what I want. I want to be able to have these hard conversations. And Mm -hmm. I have lots of examples in my life of people who, even though it's awkward, even though it's hard, persevered. And I've told this author this, I'm obsessed with this. You may know Julia Samuel, she's in the UK, but she wrote a book called Grief Works. She's a therapist and essentially Grief Works is just a, it's a series of vignettes of people that she helped. She wrote another book called This Too Will Pass, but she has a beautiful Instagram. Her Instagram is just like her talking about grief concepts. She's just the loveliest. I mean, she's basically giving her goodness away for free on Instagram all the time. And I came home one night or came upstairs because I wasn't really leaving the house when I had really terrible PTSD. And I got in bed and my husband was reading this book I'd never seen before by Julia Samuels called Grief Works. And I was like, what is that? He was like, oh, it's this book I got. I wanted to read it so that I could like know more about how you feel. And of course I sobbed and was like, yeah, get it. And he's like, oh, well, I called some people who've lost relatives and I asked them what the best book was. And he's English. So he ended up with an English book. And I was like, oh my God, that's not even hard. You know, that's what I really feel right now is that for people who are listening, the people who are listening to this podcast generally are listening because they lost someone. Yeah. But imagine if the New York times was running an op-ed that said, you know, everybody should be right now picking up all the books that are out there so that you can be a supporter. You can grow into what kind of support do you want to be? Because not only do we grow into grieving, what kind of, am I going to be a runner? Is that going to help me with my grief? I'm a writer and a talker. Is that going to help me with my grief? Do I go to therapy? Do I not? Do I reach out to other people? Am I going to talk to my siblings? What, you know, how am I going to live this forward so that I don't have to suffer? Imagine if the greater population also said, 
we're going to do that too. Yeah. Right. It would be just, it would change our whole culture, the whole conversation around grief. People wouldn't be feeling alone. People wouldn't be feeling crazy. There would be support. I think that's also part of my hope with moms don't have time to grieve that people who know people who are grieving will read some of the things that we're recommending so that they know how to walk alongside their people who are hurting. And I've been hearing from people who maybe have, you know, lost a grandparent or something, but haven't experienced very traumatic, deep personal grief that they're really carrying, but they know people who are, and they've been reaching out saying that they are finding it so helpful. Like, Oh, I didn't realize this. This is giving me better tools to have conversations with people who are hurting or better ways to reach out. Like I thought silence was helpful because I didn't want to say the wrong thing. Now I'm realizing, Oh, I feel like you are minimizing my pain and staying silent. So that has been another great part of this new community is that people are learning and getting some of the tools to help others who are grieving. And I would love to just see people, all people better equipped to help people who are grieving. When I graduated from high school, I had to take a swim test. And the reason I had to take a swim test is that someone somewhere in the history of that high school had drowned. Mm -hmm. And so the high school was like, we're just going to make sure that that doesn't happen. Obviously just knowing how to swim doesn't keep you from drowning, but Imagine if that high school said, okay, it's not typical for 17 year olds to experience Mm -hmm. primary loss, but Mm -hmm. by the time you're 40, Mm -hmm. it's the statistics. So we're just going to get you ready the Mm -hmm. same way that, and I've used this example a lot, my, you know, my, my preteen daughter long before she was ready had to take classes about what puberty was about. Mm -hmm. Right. And puberty classes these days are not just about like, oh, you're going to get boobs one day. They're Mm -hmm. about sexuality. They're about feelings. They're about peer pressure. They're about all of it. And imagine if our educational system said one way we want to prepare you for the world, maybe it's not high school, maybe it's college, Mm -hmm. is that we're going to tell you this information because you're going to need it as a griever, but also because you are definitely going to need to show up. And so here are some resources because, you know, there are some books out there and I really appreciate them. You know, I, I think early on in my grief world, I would have said to you, God, there's a lot of garbage out there. Mm -hmm. And now I just sort of feel like I don't care what's out there. People relate to garbage. So it's fine. Mm -hmm. A million books, write them all. On my website, I try to cultivate the ones that have culled down, done a good editing job and are really giving you rich nuggets that are actionable. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple, Megan Devines is one of them that really Mm -hmm. do. They're like, okay, if you're a griever, do this stuff. If you're a supporter, do these things. Mm -hmm. The element that I feel is important with the massive amount of new trauma and loss is that everybody understand that you need to grow into your own way of supporting Mm -hmm. grief, right? Mm -hmm. I have a bunch of kids. I have a a minivan, like throw your kid. Let me pick your kids. Please don't ask me to walk your dog. I don't even like my own dog. (laughs) You know, when people are like, oh, we should do a food train, like do a food train. If that makes sense to you, be a part of that. If that makes sense to you, Mm -hmm. I always send gifts to people or cards six months later, Mm. I send something six months later Mm. because I know that that was the time period that was really empty and achy. Mm -hmm. So saying to folks, maybe even at a college level, like, how do you think you would show up if, if you're family member had a tragedy or your best friend had a tragedy because what you hear all the time, and this is Western culture, not everywhere is I didn't know what to do. 
So I just left them alone. Yes. Right. I mean, it's so crazy. My little sister, I, I had a miscarriage many, many years ago. My little sister called and she was sort of like, listen, I, you know, I figure you already feel the worst you could possibly feel. So I, you know, I just thought I'd call. Cause like, I'm not going to make you feel worse. And there's right. like, I can make you feel better. That is the opposite of what most people do. What mm-hmm. most people do is they say like, I'll just leave you be, mm-hmm. let me know when I can do something for you. Yeah. And what grievers tell you is we're never going to let you know. Cause we can right. barely pull our head. Can't think. Yeah, yeah. can't think. I don't know what you could possibly do for me. What do you have to offer? And we tell ourselves stories. Mm-hmm. We invent a story about mm-hmm. how you feel about me when you leave me alone. I am too much for you. You don't like me grieving. You don't know. How. And maybe that's true. Like maybe mm-hmm. it's true. Yeah. But when we say it out loud to other people, like do something else, do something else, send mm-hmm. texts and do something else. Do something. Yeah. Do something. And that's what I usually say to folks is everybody can do something. Yeah. Everybody can do something. Even if you make them mad and hurt their feelings, they will still have an idea that that's not what you meant to do. Right. And you you tried. Yeah. If you do nothing, the story is you do not care enough about me. You Mm -hmm. used to care about me, but now this terrible thing happened. And now you don't care about me anymore. I Mm -hmm. am too much for you to care about. Yeah. And that is brutal. Yeah. I mean, it is just brutal. Mm-hmm. And there are folks, I mean, there, I think there are for everyone, the people who I just say, like, they know the native language of grief and they show up in these gorgeous and beautiful ways. And so that's the other thing is that we know it can be done. Yes. Other people showed up. I mean, usually it's because they had their card punched, honestly, like that, you know, know. They are grievers themselves. Mm-hmm. But the folks who are like, oh, it's too much. It's a little awkward. It's like what you're looking at is like you are sort of adolescent in your ill-formed approach. Mm -hmm. Imagine Mm -hmm. if right now on account of COVID, on account of the fact that the statistics that we are estimating is mind boggling. People said, I'm going to go get a couple of books. I'm going to go to Megan's website. I'm going to go to Cherry's web stuff. And I'm going to look at what the resources are. And I'm going to read them so that I know. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. I will need to know. This has been a collective trauma for the world, for our country, for all of us that have lost people that we know through COVID, just all of this. And you would think that would help us to grieve better together. Yeah. And I don't know that it has, but it could have. And I don't think it's too late, but it just makes me think of, I went to Virginia Tech to call for college. And I was a freshman there when the shootings occurred in 2007. And that was an example of collective trauma, collective grief that we all were brought together. Our campus was changed and our student body was changed and it can be done. Yeah. I don't know that we have done it through COVID. And that is such a shame because it could have been something where we are encouraging other people to reach out to those that are grieving and help one another. And I don't know that we're there, but I think it's too late. I think what you are doing and what other people in the grief space are doing almost like ramped up in these last months, like, Hey, everyone, like you're saying, we got to double down. This is serious. And there are so many people that are hurting all hands on deck, do what you can. And hopefully we can make a difference. And this would be a, a turning point in the whole grief conversation. And how- I mean, that's my hope. Like there are people, Alison Gilbert is involved with, I think it's called Evermore and they've been lobbying the white house to include bereavement leave. Yeah. You know? 
So there's people working at a policy level and Mm -hmm. then there's people that's just in their Instagram feed. And then there are folks who are, you know, like you and I are doing, which is we're, we're trying to offer the resources to the people who are going to need it. But I do think there's this like interesting window right now, because even what you described with your own grief, which is like, you went home to your family and you guys grieved your own personal individual losses together. Mm-hmm. And that that was a comfort. There are so many people that have not until just now been able to get anywhere to I see know anyone. I mean, that for me as a trauma therapist, when people are talking to me about COVID death and I'm like, okay, well, could you? And I'm like, no, you can't do that. Can't do anything. Like it's all, uh, you know, it's all deadly. I think we're going to have some PTSD stuff. I think oh, yeah. again, this sort of year out thing, like when you were describing, you, you said it with some energy. I don't think I did it well. And my, you know, cause I didn't, I didn't have a lot of grief in that first year. What I say about that is, or that was genius and exactly what needed to happen. You know, what, Mm -hmm. what I know from my own grief travel is that I went under the water with grief. That's what PTSD Mm -hmm. is. It kind of holds you under the water Mm -hmm. rather than allows you to titrate it out. Yeah. And our hope for most grievers is that they're going to be able to take on grief as a a lifelong process so that it doesn't have to overwhelm their nerve, their neurosystem and sort of take them out of the game. But I think maybe a year from soon, yeah, we're going to start seeing people have that, you know, that overwhelm. My community pool is now open. Nobody's wearing masks. I don't really understand that. I don't know really what the rules are. And so I feel kind of anxious while I'm there. And I have seen some family who've had, co- I know they had COVID. And so like, I don't know how they're feeling. And then there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of people and there's a lot of, like my system is taking in so much. Yes. And right. Yeah. And we're about to do all that. By the time we hit the fall, it seems like we're all just going to go back to sort of normal life. And my hope is we are not going to go back to normal life. My hope is that we are going to amplify our skill base. Even if somebody told us this is the basic neuroscience, you kind of have a concussion. If that was Mm -hmm. all, if that was the nugget that we got, that is a good enough nugget nugget that we got was, you know what? You should text someone every five days for a year after they've had a primary attachment loss. If that's all you got, go for it. That's enough. That would be better. Those small percentages of understanding would be better than what we're possibly looking at, which is people who are really excited to go back to the way things were. When trauma, what we know is if we can't, if we can't carry the pain in a way that's manageable, we will dissociate from the pain. And so we dissociate with drugs and alcohol and all the process addictions. We don't want that. We don't want a whole host of everybody. I know in that space. Right. And I don't want to be a a fear monger. I have so much hope, Mm -hmm. but I just, I really feel like well-meaning people could pick up a couple of books. I think we have a long way to go for, you know, all the people that have lost because all loss is complicated, but when you weren't able to be with family or say goodbye, that, I mean, that is going to really impact these people. It's heartbreaking. I just can't even imagine how some of the people who have had to deal with their loss over the last year, it's so unique yet. So many people have experienced it, but they're all experiencing it totally alone. And it's going to take a really long time. Like you were saying 
to start processing that and working through it and begin the healing. And I think all grievers can feel like when you've lost something and you look around, you're like, how can, how can life just go on? Why is everyone being normal when it isn't normal? When that's what the whole country is saying, like, oh, let's just get back to normal. Let's not forget a lot of people never get to go back to normal and how every time they hear that phrase, it's probably very hurtful and just another like salt on the wound. Like I don't get to go back to normal. I'm glad that you're excited. You can, you know, go on your vacation. I don't get to see my mom again. You know, like it's just some sensitivity around that I think is also necessary. My dad died right at just a little bit after his 80th birthday, 11 days after his 80th birthday. And my mom died when she was 75. And anytime someone says, Oh, I'm going to my mom's 77th birthday. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, all the numbers past 75 hurt me now. Mm-hmm. And they never hurt me before. Everybody who grieves is like, yeah, no, you know, I, mm-hmm. I catalog that. I wonder, I say like when my father-in-law one time said like, oh, my, it, it was my dad's birthday. He would have been like 117 or something. When do we stop doing that? Right. I'm yeah. sure you do that with no. your brother. He would no. have been this, however many years old. So there's all this stuff. Again, it's very true to grievers. It's not a mystery. Just ask us. We'll tell you, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. there's kind of everywhere. When my mom died, I was in the car. I learned that she had died. I already, I sort of knew that that had happened. I had a wild animal inside me that mm-hmm. I had to get to her and pray over her body, even though mm-hmm. I don't pray because that mm-hmm. is what I knew she needed. I would go to the mat for that. Mm-hmm. If you were to tell me that I couldn't have done that, I don't know what would have happened to me. The leaving of my mother's house, which had to happen, happened before I was able to take care of her things. Mm. had to leave. We had exhausted all of my husband's vacation time. The kids had to go back to school. We had to leave, but I had panic attacks in the car that included me trying to open the door on a highway. I had to be sedated. So, and those, those were just like overwhelming, strong feelings Mm -hmm. of the attachment. Mm -hmm. There are people everywhere that couldn't, that couldn't go and sit with their person that are still, I know, suffering with the pain, what they couldn't do. And so for the people who are listening, who are those people, what I want you to know is there are body centered therapies. So not only do I do them, but I have had them done on me where you use the memory, the painful memory and your imagination at the same time. And you unlock that untenable wild caged animal fear energy, whatever it is, you bring that up and you add something that is a relief. So for example, in mine, I was in, I was in a parking lot when I learned that my mom had died, although I already knew that she had died. And I had this moment where I had to sort of decide, am I going to fall apart about this? Or am I going to get in the car and be the mom to the kids that are in the car? And because I think that's what I had to do. I got in the car and drove those kids home and didn't let on that my mom had died. But that, that is a core part of the trauma story. So, you know, everybody has those moments that they go back to in their mind where there's pain. And that moment in the parking lot was the one with primary pain. And there are multiple kinds of therapies where you go back into the memory. In my example, which I write about in my memoir is I imagined my older brother and his wife picking me up. I imagined my Hmm. my sister-in-law driving the van for me. And I imagined Hmm. my brother being there with me 
and driving me to my mother so that a, I wasn't there alone because I was alone. My (laughs) husband was there, but I was in that room alone and I didn't have to pretend for an hour and 17 minutes that I wasn't devastated. And all I can tell you, it may sound like voodoo magic, but those of us who have, who both practice this and have experienced it is you hold the energy of that pain in your body. And -hmm. when you're able to partner your history, so your memory with your imagination, it's different. You hold it different. Uh, yeah. So that's sensory motor psychotherapy, EMDR, IFS, any one of those therapies goes in and can shift that. And I just, again, I sort of feel like the one thing that I end up putting on grief and loss boards all the time is go find a therapist that does these kinds of treatments. Mm-hmm. You know, they're treatments. They're, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not just process. It's, it's a treatment. Yeah. It's like a thing we, you know, cost a lot of money to get trained in. It has a protocol. We do it. Sometimes it works right away. Sometimes we do it five or six times, mm-hmm. but then you're unburdened from that. Yeah. So the way that I felt about that memory is not the way I feel about it now. Mm-hmm. that I have a release from it. Are those treatments you would recommend for most people who have experienced a trauma or is it unnecessary for some? How do you determine when that's the appropriate? Treatment? It's such a great question. It's like, I want to be careful about answering it, but I don't want to be careful about answering it because I think the reason I want to be careful about it is that we still pathologize grief so much. We still act as though we're failing at something when we're having really strong feelings. What I always say to people is, images, flashing, intense, you know, reactions in your body, they tend to fade on their own over time, but you could also use some tools and get them to fade right now. Yeah. And for those that don't fade over time, when you're not interrupting that loop, they're like crystallizing. Yeah. You know, they're locking themselves into your neural Mm -hmm. pathways that you're going to be triggered in this way all the time. When people are like, when do I need to, when, when should I, I'm like, I think you're already there. If you're asking the question, do I need help? That's enough. That's yeah. I had this conversation with another grief therapist. Who's like, listen, the literature says this, it's 60% of people resolve their grief completely on their own. But I used to be a researcher. I used to collect data. So I'm not trying to say that the data is not true, but qualitatively, No one I have ever met has said, I had exactly enough resources. I knew exactly how to be Mm -hmm. totally. They they reached out for support, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what we should do. And maybe felt supported, but there is traumatic loss. There is traumatic. I had PTSD. That's not common. Not everybody has that, but could people benefit from EMDR so that they, that they could sleep better? Even though it might resolve in three months, they could resolve it in, I don't know, six weeks. So my answer, which is sort of like when people are like, Megan, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic. I'm like, well, you probably have a problem with alcohol just by asking the question. People who don't have problems with alcohol don't even bother to ask that question. Mm -hmm. So when people are saying, well, you know, I'm wondering when it's time to go see a grief therapist. I just want to make sure that they go and see a grief therapist, a real, a grief informed therapist, the same way that like, if you have trauma, you need to see a trauma informed therapist Mm -hmm. before I trained in trauma. I definitely made some people worse by asking Mm -hmm. them to tell me their story and activated their system and got them Mm -hmm. agitated. And you and I know we talked about this in the beginning off air, 
one of the things about trauma is you have to have a narrative that you can share with another person that doesn't activate your, light you up like a Christmas tree and then mean that you can't go do your job for the rest of the day or attend to your kids Mm -hmm. and you have to go to bed. And in early grief, most things make you feel that way, but eventually you have to be able to do that. I really do think there are some treatments out there that can help you Mm -hmm. do that sooner. So in my mm-hmm. mind, it's like, what's the worst thing that happens? The worst right. thing that happens is you spend a little money and you go and get a treatment and you're like, that was wacko. I didn't need that done. It's not going to do something terrible to you. Right. The other thing to know is that there, there are some really comprehensive studies out there about ACEs, which are these mm-hmm. adverse childhood experiences. They don't predict how you're going to respond to a traumatic event, but there is a lot of correlation between people with high ACE scores being more susceptible to trauma. Hmm. So an ACE is for people who don't know about it, are adverse childhood experiences. They're things like growing up in poverty, having an early childhood death, parents who are mentally ill, addiction, someone in the family who's been imprisoned. If you have that in your childhood, then it is more likely, and there's, I mean, I could go into the why of that, but it has to do with attachments that you are more likely to be someone who experiences trauma with difficult traumatizing events. The one thing I didn't say, which I've said in a million other places, but I'll say it here today, a traumatic event does not mean you are traumatized. Mm -hmm. There is a traumatic event and everyone experiences that traumatic event for Mm -hmm. some people it is a blip on the screen. And for other people, it's a game-changing life turning event. If someone that you love is murdered, most people, that's going to be a game-changing event. They're going to make some meaning of that event. But traumatization is your neurosystem is overwhelmed by it and you make some meaning. And the most concrete example, which is from Bessel van der Kolk, who's the guy who talks about all this stuff and has done unbelievable work with brain imaging and all that is he has this famous case of a couple who are the two of them are in a car accident Mm -hmm. and one person is like well that was a car accident and the other person is like cars are dangerous we should Mm -hmm. never get cars for the rest of our lives that's Mm -hmm. just the most concrete example Mm -hmm. Uh, they were both in the trauma yeah the meaning that is made for one changes Mm -hmm. the whole trajectory of life And that's the part that we want to get in and support. And when we're looking at ACEs, we're looking at, okay, listen, this woman had these events happen. Her father was incarcerated. She lived in poverty. We got, we, we might need to show up with more support. Right. So when people ask that question, should I, Megan, should I go to therapy? Often what I say is tell me about these things in your life. What did your parenting structure look like? What was the financial stability of your family? Were there childhood death, you know? And if they, you know, hit two or three of them, I'm like, yeah, go, just go. Yeah. Make sure you see a grief informed person because lots of therapists will say, yes, no, I'm very grief informed, but that doesn't mean that they're grief informed. So I give them a couple of questions to ask and all that stuff is on my website. I think you and I are trying to say to folks that everybody has to go to therapy. There are resources everywhere but Mm -hmm. let's put them in one place so that it's not so damn hard. And we don't all feel like we're reinventing the wheel, you know, and that's what I appreciate about the work that you're doing. People like you, and there's so many people out there who are doing the work. I don't need 
to do it. I just want to point people towards it. I'm not an expert, but I know what is helpful for me and what I can imagine would be helpful. So let me just point people to people like you and Alison Gilbert and tons of other people in the grief space who are doing such incredible work. So I feel just like drinking like the water hose, like, wow, all of this content is so helpful and so great. Even years later, it's helpful for me. Other people that I know that are grieving. So yeah, that's our hope. Just point, point others towards people that are doing the work. So how do people find you if they are interested in all the resources that you have available? How will, how, what's the best way for them to come and get on the, the mailing list and all that stuff? Okay. The best way would be to go to zibbyowens.com and she's got a grief tab at the top. And then from there, you can join our community. We have a mighty networks community. We are on Instagram at moms don't have time to grieve. And also from Zibby's website, it's helpful to hear people's personal stories and kind of the expert share. This is what grief is. This is normal. This is maybe what you can expect. So we try to cover it all. So that's where you can find us. Yeah. I love that. You guys have some articles that are written just for your site, which are really beautiful and special. I I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing. I think it's gorgeous. I think it, it's just going to continue to grow and grow. And I know you and I are going to stay connected because we have a million threads of staying connected, but I'm really grateful for this conversation today. And, um, I'm grateful for your expertise and your sharing Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to oh, you. So great. Thank you for the time. I didn't, I realized I kept you over an hour, but I could have talked to you forever. So I really appreciate this and yeah, we'll just, we'll keep talking. Thank yeah, you. We'll so keep much. in touch. Okay. Thank Gary, thanks so much. Take care. Uh-huh. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for spending time with us on Grief is My Side Hustle. If you like this episode, please go over to Apple Podcasts or where you listen to podcasts and give us a rating so that people can find us. I know I ask you every time and it seems silly, but it really does impact how easy it is for the podcast to pop up in people's feed when they're searching and everybody reads the reviews to know whether or not the podcast is worthwhile. So if you like us five stars, that would be great. Thanks so much. And we'll be back here next week for another episode.